This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO of Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist for Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's or affiliates. We're going to have a super interesting show today. We're going to be talking with uh, a, a, an anonymous guest, but uh, he writes a, a very interesting substack. We're talking to Doomberg. Doomberg, welcome to Behind the Markets. <laughs> Jeremy, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is only our second show in this format. The last one, uh, we had a guest in, who is local to Philadelphia come, uh, an anonymous uh, tweeter. Um, I guess now we're anonymous Xers, um, but uh, you know you've been publishing on Twitter and on your own Substack. Tell us a, a little bit about your how you approach things, how you think about the world, uh, and, and and sort of why be anonymous. Yeah, lots to unpack there. Um, starting with um, who we are and what we do, I guess would probably be a pretty good place. Uh, we're a small team of uh, former executives from industry who uh, several years ago created our own consulting firm and found our way into the content creation world um, by happenstance after COVID. You know, like many small business owners or entrepreneurs, we had to reinvent ourselves um, as a consequence of the lockdown. Um, and we did, and we ended up in the content creation space. And in 2021, we decided to create a blog on Substack, which was a relatively novel thing to do back then. And uh, it has exploded beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, it is now the thing we do full time. Uh, and uh, we run a subscription newsletter um, that focuses on energy finance and the economy at large. And our unique angle is because we come from industry, but we are free to write whatever we feel. Uh, we are not hindered, say, by public affairs teams or fear of uh, losing our RSUs or stock options. We could bring the industry lens to the commodity sector, which I think is a pretty unique aspect of our product. Um, the anonymity, uh, it's how we started. We had no social media footprint. We created the green chicken. It really pops on Twitter. Um, that we were able to grow an audience much faster than if it had just been my face, for example. Um, and once you sort of grow a brand like this, we have observed that if you de-anonymize, it tends to pop the bubble of intrigue around the brand. And the brand is something we've worked hard to create and are very protective of. And so just for fun and for mostly just for the brand, we've decided to stay anonymous. Uh, hundreds of people know who we are on Wall Street. Substack knows who we are. You know, Stripe knows who we are. Our banks, our bankers know who we are. Like we're, we just decided to keep the green chicken as the forward-facing brand. And then, lastly, we are a team. And and while I am the head writer and the head of social media for the Doomberg team, it wouldn't make sense to you know individualize or personalize around one of us. And so, um, and it's it's the way the world is going. You know, people live online, uh, the metaverse, as uh, Mark Zuckerberg would call it. And we think um, more and more people would be uh, more willing to express their well-thought-out views uh, if they could do so uh, with some protection of anonymity. And then we're uh, an example of that could be very successful. And I'm talking to the green chicken now. So I can see the green chicken on our uh, on our call now. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great format. Um, so, so in terms of the energy background, um, and that's like a huge topic now, so I'm sure we're gonna drill into a lot of these views throughout the conversation. But any other, anything else about just the industry experience as you as you've thought through as your team? Like what what types of energy sector experience has they? Can you talk anything anything more about that specific consulting work you guys do? Absolutely. I, I personally am a, um, a trained scientist. I have a PhD. I, I worked in industry over the better part of twenty years. Um, first as an individual researcher in the energy alternative energy space. And then as I, as I climbed a corporate ladder, I led um, you know, progressively larger teams around the world, um, very well connected with chief technology officers and scientists and industry. And um, we leverage that expertise and knowledge. Um, uh, if we don't know um, the answer ourselves, we certainly have people in our Rolodex that we can call. And once they point us in the right direction, it's easy for us to understand it, perhaps um, than those who aren't trained in the scientific field. And if you really 
drill down to the thing that makes our writing unique and popular is we explain complex scientific phenomenon to investors in a language that they can understand. Um, and so we, we try to create a really compelling product. We care deeply about our ability to tell stories, our editing, um, the product quality, our photoshops, our charting. And, um, and that's what we do. And so um, that combination of science plus industry background is a unique angle. A lot of people who partake in the energy discussion today do so from an academic or a government lens uh, or a financial lens, pure financial lens. And, and we occupy that space in the Venn diagram uh, that we think is pretty unique to us. And again, most of our colleagues or former colleagues uh, would love to write the things we write, but they just are inhibited by their corporate constraints. And so anytime we write on a particularly controversial topic in a way that gives the industrial lens, our inbox is filled with thank yous and, and attaboys um, because we are you know, presenting the point of view from the industry. And that's a pretty valuable one because they're the people that are actually digging the holes in the ground, doing the drilling, uh, creating the technologies that power our lives. I, I will say I, I've been following your Twitter posts of uh, uh, summarizing your Substack, but I I will admit I just subscribed recently. But uh, I, I I went through as many I, I'd say about a year's worth of stories, um, so I have some sense of what you've been writing about. But give if you say from that lens that you just talked about the things that are the most controversial views today that you hold that the industry would like to say. Let's start with your most hot, your hottest take. What what is your hottest take that the world doesn't uh, can't say right now? Um, the the probably the hottest take is that there is no realistic path to decarbonization um, through renewables. Um, certainly not through renewables alone. And in fact, in our view, there is no path to any decarbonization of consequence that doesn't run squarely through uh, nuclear energy. And and I would say. Um, we have done a, a pretty systematic job of detailing why that is from a physics perspective. Um, you know, propaganda versus physics, I know which one will win, um, but the path function sometimes can be onerous. Uh, so in our view, um, the intermittency and um, low uh, energy density and low return on energy invested um, attributes of, of weather-dependent renewables makes them particularly unsuitable for our way of life. And already we're beginning to see in the media, more and more references to how we should ponder sacrificing key portions of our way of life in the name of climate change. And we don't think that A, it'll work, and B, populations will put up with it. And so um, we, we try to approach things scientifically uh, to point out the fallacies of logic, um, the uh, fraudulent manipulation of data in some cases, um, calling it what it is, that try to trick people into thinking that there is an easy path of decarbonization, that fossil fuels are a luxury, that we can uh, do away with. Um, and more and more, we see around the world evidence that in the emerging economies, people are walking away from their carbon commitments. In the developed world, populations are getting pretty restless uh, as um, the consequences of our uh, uh, foolish energy policies are leading to deindustrialization. Um, and so that is probably the most, the hottest take, the thing that we um, believe the strongest, that we uh, get the most support from, the quiet clapping in the background from our friends in industry. Where do you think people, and there's like the media's take on this, and then there's the politicians and the actual policy takes. Um, where would you say that nuclear discussion is? There's a lot of people on called finance Twitter talk about the the uranium and, and nuclear uh, trades and the opportunities there. But why, why do you think people have not embraced nuclear as much as they should have? So we recently put out a piece called Frame of Reference, which tackles um, this phenomenon head on. Um, and in that piece, we made the case that uh, with all other sources of primary energy, we understand inherently that there is some risk, some trade-off, and we accept that um, no uh, input is perfect. But with nuclear, um, we, we argue that um, we have an irrational fear to the point where, you know, the general population has begun to lose faith in the technology altogether. And that is as a result of a decades-long propaganda campaign on the part of radical environmentalists to do just that. And in their mind, um, no risk is too small to amplify beyond all plausible proportion and no benefit too large to minimize into irrelevancy. And um, in reality, uh, nuclear power is the cleanest, safest, highest energy density form of primary energy that we have access to, and we should be exploiting it post-haste. And um, in most of the world, people understand that. In the US, we are beginning to uh, 
reconcile uh, to that fundamental aspect of physics. Um, looking around the world, the only place that is resisting a nuclear renaissance today still is Germany. Um, but you know, if we take a step back, um, Jeremy, the, the real issue here is that energy is life. And um, we live in a world where you know electricity comes from a light switch and we can order food by tapping on our phones. Um, and so in the West in particular, we have become deeply disconnected from the fundamental forces of the universe and all of the work and energy that makes that happen. And so we, we truly um, have the luxury of the rich that we could pretend like these things just immaculately appear when in fact they don't. And so um, nuclear is the answer. Either we will have radically decreased standard of living or we will continue to burn as much fossil fuels as we do today. Um, or, or we'll have a, a renaissance with, with nuclear energy. Those are the three realistic options uh, on the table. You talked a little bit about the story in Japan and, you know, they had the Fukushima disaster and, and what they were doing to cool the water there and the, the opposition they're getting based on that situation. Can you brief our listeners um, for what you see as the dynamic of what Japan did to cool off their reactors and then now what they're trying to do with all the wastewater and the opposition that they're getting we began frame of reference with a story about the collapse of a hydroelectric dam in china in 1975 and that collapse came about as a consequence of a generational rain event over vast swaths of the chinese interior um typhoon um, nina i believe and um, that dam collapsed, causing a domino of downstream dams to collapse and flooded enormous parts of China. And the um, death estimates range from 20,000 to 240,000. You know, it's quite the bid-ass spread on the number of people who died uh, from such an event. Um, we did not, as a society, decide that we should set about the task of deconstructing every hydroelectric dam in the world, uh, nor did we put uh, a moratorium uh, on their construction. Um, we recognize that in the pursuit of energy, it's dangerous stuff. Uh, and so what happened at Fukushima? There was a generational earthquake that caused a tsunami. Not a single person died as a consequence of exposure to radiation in the immediate aftermath of Fukushima. One person has since um, passed away from cancer four years after the event, and that is the, the, the singular death that occurred because of Fukushima. Um, it was a really unfortunate industrial accident. And as you say, um, some 1.3 million cubic meters of seawater was used to cool the reactor um, and to minimize the damage to the environment. That water has been um, captured and treated. And after 12 years of careful processing, um, they've eliminated effectively all potential risk that that water would represent to humans or the environment. And yet still, they have a very conservative plan to slowly release that water into the Pacific Ocean, further diluting it 100 to 1 um, as they do so. And they're going to do that over a period of 30 years. And um, I would swim in that water today. You would swim in that water today. You get more exposure uh, from radiation by eating a banana than you would by jumping in to one of those containers that holds, that holds quote, Fukushima water. Mm. Um, but we have allowed ourselves to believe that um, that radiation derived from civilian nuclear energy development is somehow conflated with thermonuclear war and the fallout that would that would occur from a full exchange of, of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, it is so unscientific and so um, you know uh, prime. It, it's, it taps into the worst reptilian aspects of our brain um, to drive fear into people. I would swim in the water that they're proposing to slowly release over a period of 30 years. And we say in the piece, you know, that Hong Kong has, um, has cynically uh, raised objections over to it. And, and we believe they're doing so at the behest of the Chinese in Beijing. And let's not kid ourselves. They would have released this water into the ocean a decade ago without ever telling anybody uh, that they did. Um, and so uh, the more uh, Japan tries to make this as safe as possible, the greater the resistance to doing anything about it. And it's really the most absurd case study in our uh, inability to measure risks and to execute trade-offs. In, in terms of the, the countries who uh, think you're taking the most sensible approach to this, and uh, is how do you view China 
uh, you know, you're saying they're objecting in some ways to this, but are they doing uh, enough in the in in their country for sort of spurring the demand for more nuclear? And then, I guess, who else in Europe? Where where do you think it is over there? China is building nuclear reactors at a historic pace, uh, far more than anybody else um, uh, on the planet. Um, um, obviously, France today gets the vast majority of its electricity from a pre-existing fleet of nuclear reactors that they could do a much better job of running. I think the the best example uh, is, in fact, not a country, but a province, and it is the province of Ontario in Canada. We wrote a piece called uh, Cheat Codes, which walks through how Ontario wasted $60 billion in, in, in something called the Green Energy Act of, of um, 2009, and that the population revolted as the price of electricity skyrocketed and they threw out the government and the new government uh, led by Doug Ford um, is um, reconciling with physics and setting about um, producing the uh, nuclear technology and the reactors and the construction of them that will set up their generation, the next generation of Ontarians with the, the greenest, most stable, cheapest electricity grid in the developed world. And last time I drove through Ontario, it was a beautiful country. The highways were flowing. The rivers weren't green. Um, you know, I, I didn't see uh, uh, zombies uh, walking uh, out in the middle of the street, despite the fact that they get today 60% of their electricity from nuclear power. Uh, it's a vibrant economy. It's a developed economy. The education system is good. Um, you know, th th there's nothing wrong with, with the way of life in Ontario. It's a beautiful place to live. Um, they are the exception that proves the rule. Uh, and uh, so we decided to highlight their efforts in, in the piece called Cheat Codes. Um, where Japan itself um, is turning re restarting its nuclear reactors at a rapid pace. Even Belgium has decided to do an about face on their anti-nuclear stance. The UK is building a large reactor. Um, the United Arab Emirates uh, just turned on their third of four nuclear power reactors that will secure uh, uh, 60 years worth of cheap, reliable baseload um, electricity, carbon-free for their gener next generation of citizens. Uh, even the US is beginning um, to turn the corner. And so we are quite hopeful. Um, ultimately, when we've tried all the dumb things, we will uh, either land on the smart thing or things will get worse. And so we would rather just sort of skip the steps in between, as we said in cheat codes. Um, here's the answer. Um, here's what not to do. Uh, why do we need to repeat via the Inflation Reduction Act all of the mistakes that Ontario made? Uh, and why don't we just get about the business of, of implementing the right answer in the first place? At least we have natural gas in the U.S., whereas Europe is struggling a lot more. Like, what do you think? Where do you think Europe went way wrong? What's if you had to speculate the dynamics in Germany? Um, you know, so much of the pain, it seems like, was self-inflicted in some of those surging energy prices. But maybe sort of diagnose the, the broader European energy dilemma with all that's going on with the, the war in, in Russia-Ukraine situation. The fundamental challenge with Europe is it produces almost none of its own energy, um, nuclear power excluded. So from the fossil fuels perspective, it produces low single digit percent of the world's coal, natural gas and oil. And it had become dependent on others for the, um, the carbon inputs that drove um, much of its uh, industrial economy. Germany in particular made a decades long bet that they could um, reliably obtain cheap natural gas via pipeline from Russia, um, resell for a profit and or upgrade that natural gas uh, in its manufacturing sector and then export to China, uh, which for um, a, a long period of time uh, worked quite well. Um, we wrote, in hindsight, a, a pretty per persuasive piece that um, they were handing all of the keys of their geopolitical future to uh, Vladimir Putin and he might not be the friendliest of individuals um, to, to give that leverage to. We wrote a piece, I think six months before the breakout of hostilities in Ukraine called uh, Putin's Fools Rush In, uh, which was actually the beginning of the natural gas crisis in Europe. Um, Europe has banned fracking. So at, when you say at least the U.S. has natural gas, the U.S. has natural gas and we have proactively chosen to develop it. Um, Europe has plenty of natural gas. It has proactively chosen not to develop it. And there is a consequence to such decisions. Uh, one of the consequences is they handed all of their energy cards to, to Putin, and he overplayed his leverage in our view. He foolishly crossed the border into Ukraine, thinking that his control over um, Europe's uh, energy future would cause them to quickly collapse and cede to his demands. They did not do that, um, but they have, as a consequence, exposed themselves for being energy weak. And ultimately, energy is life, energy is war, energy is 
your military energy is your economy. And if you depend on unfriendly forces for the balance of your needs, in this case, natural gas, um, then you pay a heavy price. At the apex of the European energy crisis um, in 2022, the price of natural gas reached $100 per million BTU. Now, that's probably not a number that's going to mean much to your listeners. Let's, let's put it into context. Um, that same molecule of natural gas um, trades for roughly two bucks and change in the U.S. And on an oil equivalent basis, you know, um, we all know what, a, what the price of a barrel of oil means. Um, $100 per million BTU natural gas is roughly the equivalent of $600 a barrel oil. And um, the majority of homes in Germany are heated by natural gas. Um, and so it was a true crisis. It cost the country hundreds of billions of dollars. It disrupted global energy flows. Um, in preparation for the winter that never came last year, Germany scoured the world in search of every source of BTU it could get, regardless of cost, carbon footprint, or impact on emerging uh, uh, countries like Pakistan and Indonesia. And uh, they accomplished that task. Um, they now sport one of the dirtiest grids in Europe, despite having spent trillion dollars on the renewable agenda. They burn an enormous amount of coal just to keep the lights on. The policy has failed, and we don't need to repeat it here. So I, I want to come back to your view on sort of the long-term demand for energy and some of the, and, and, and how you started about the things that are, I, I guess, the hottest takes that we have. Like one of the big things that there's a lot of investment around is sort of the EV transition and electrical vehicles and, and how much mines are being needed for that in terms of things like copper and cobalt and lithium and all these other things going away from traditional fossil fuels. Talk about the investments being made there and, and how you just give me give me your big picture view of what, what's happening in terms of the trends in, in the EV space. Yeah, so this is an interesting question because there's what we should do and there's what we will do. And there's what should investors do about those two things. And they're actually pretty interesting questions in isolation, and especially when you take them together. So it's pretty clear what we should do, um, as we've articulated, at least in our view. So one investor philosophy could be, I'm going to invest in what we should do, and, and under the belief that the market will eventually get there. Uh, we don't necessarily think that's the best approach, um, because you know uh, policy can stay inefficient longer than you can stay solvent. Yeah. Um, there is what we will do, and it's just as much as we might argue against it, we are going to unleash a fire hose of cash in an epic orgy of malinvestment in the renewable space as a result of the consequences of the Inflation Reduction Act. And in our view, there are three ways that you can play that. One is to understand that there are going to be a series of promotes that arise out of this, and those promotes will never make any money. Um, their equity values will soar and eventually collapse. And you could decide that you're smart enough to time that and get in early and, you know, um, recognize that you're participating in a greater fool's trade and then, and then sell out at the right time. We don't do that, but some people are good at it. And there will be no shortages of, of such opportunities as we uncork hundreds of billions of dollars of government waste into the sector. Um, the second, perhaps smarter view is to analyze across each of the sectors that are receiving this cash which are the enabling underlying technologies that, that allow the promotes to grow. So this is sort of the selling shovels to gold miners approach if we're going to borrow a tired cliche. So what is the, what is the, the technology that makes sort of the installation of a wind turbine happen? Or what is the, uh, the critical ingredient that increases the efficiency of a solar panel? Um, finding those types of companies, um, recognizing that they are going to be profitable, um, but will only survive as long as the entire edifice of the industry survives um, is, is a, probably a better play. Um, we call those um, pinch points. Like what are, the, what are the pinch points to growth that the promoters desperately need to show? And, and if you find such a pinch point, they can in fact extract a disproportionate share of, of the value in the chain uh, because the, the growth can't be shown without their technology and the promoters won't be able to show that growth to Wall Street and sell equity uh, against it. The third is to, is to invest in contras like traditional energy producers that will be needed in all scenarios. If you had made an investment in, in coal producers in 2021, it would have been, I think, a pretty uh, career-defining trade for you. Um, not many people have the courage to do that. Um, those are the three great ways that investors could play it in our view. It's either um, you know, indulge in a greater fool's trade, 
try to find the pinch points or invest in the contras that will be uh, standing once this uh, spending has been completed. It's funny you gave the the origin of malinvestment. That's exactly the bolded line I I had to ask you about. Um, in terms of the, can you give us a, a, an example of the uh, of the first two things you just talked about, the promoters and the pitch points? What what would be an example of where you think a pinch point is? Uh, you don't have to give a specific company, but but if you have a specific company, that'd be a great example to to get people through. Uh, I have a, a specific industry that's evolving right now that a bunch of cash is going into. That might be a better example to uh, detail the two of those things. And Great. that involves um, the concept of um, uh, the direct extraction of lithium. So um, it's just undeniable that we're going to need way more lithium than we currently produce if we are going to meet um, the demands for the batteries that will power the electric vehicles of the future. And we wrote a piece on this called Separation Anxiety. Uh, where we detail the way in which we make lithium today, which would surprise people. And then there's this concept that you can um, take brine, lithium-rich brine, and basically just filter them or you know, use filters with a lot of energy and concentrate the lithium uh, outside of the traditional sort of evaporation mining or hard rock mining concepts. And there's an enormous amount of money being poured into this space. So in our framework, an example of a promote would be the mining company itself, the company that is proposing to produce lithium with breakthrough direct lithium extraction. Um, they're never going to make any money, but um, they are at the sort of apex of excitement. Like, hey, we have this breakthrough technology and we're going to produce lithium and the world's going to need lithium. Um, the reason why we would hesitate to invest in such companies uh, is because of the very nature of price-taking commodities is that breakthroughs in uh, technology are the very things that undermine the price of the commodity. And a great example would be um, the horizontal drilling and fracking in the U.S., the producers of oil in the sector never really made any money. In fact, they torched an enormous amount of capital because they were responsible for keeping the price of oil down for as long as it did, and they never really made any money as a consequence of it. Some of their stocks went up and went down, and after COVID, many of them filed for bankruptcy. They never really made uh, a return on capital, um, but you could have gotten a decent return on an equity trade uh, in that setting. Um, an example of um, the pinch points that will that will make money and will do well in direct lithium extraction would be the companies that are providing the membranes and the filters themselves, the disposables that make the mining work. And the analogy back to the shale producers is the oil service providers, the the coated sand providers, all the people that were selling into the shale boom, where the price of their product was not really dependent on the price of oil. It was instead dependent on the demand for their pinch point material that made the whole thing work. And in direct lithium extraction, we'd be far more interested in finding the providers of the membranes, the filters, the auxiliary services that allow the promoters to claim the breakthrough and to start selling the lithium. So I think that's a pretty good example of how we look at things when we see an emerging trend like um, the need for much more lithium over the coming decades. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic, fantastic example there. In terms of the the other move towards electric vehicles, is you hear a lot about lithium for the batteries. Um, I hear a lot about copper, and there's been some sort of super cycle copper stories out there that there's just going to be not enough copper. Do you buy into that as one of the key inputs as uh, in the long term demand for it? Well, beyond electric vehicles, of course, the whole movement is to electrify everything under the theory that if we install enough intermittent renewables, we will have an abundance of cheap electricity. And though, so we should heat our homes with it and we should drive, you know, propel our vehicles with it and, and so on. And so in the move to electrify everything, um, there will be uh, a huge demand for copper, both for the increased um, capacity and transmission of the grid itself to the need to use it uh, in vehicles and in your home and, and so on. And so, um, I do think that um, copper will be a gating function in the transition, but it doesn't necessarily mean that its price will skyrocket um, because the market has a funny way of sniffing out what will actually happen. Um, so, for example, you might see depressed prices in lithium and cobalt and nickel because the market knows there's not enough copper to make it happen, and so it's not going to happen. And so the rosy projections around lithium and cobalt and nickel are, in fact, wrong, and the market is discounting them. Um, and so... Um, 
these, of course, are very complex things to analyze as an outsider, and that's why it's almost impossible to trade commodities directly. You know, we leave that to the experts who who, who have the nuanced information at at the sort of buyer seller level. Um, but but that's an example of where um, we believe uh, the grades of copper around the world are getting worse. The cost to extract copper um, is growing. Uh, by the way, that cost is highly correlated to the price of fossil fuels because diesel is a dominant input into the mining of all commodities, especially um, low-grade ores like um, the copper uh, mines that exist in the world. Our rate of discovery of new copper mines is as slow as it's been in a very long time. And so um, when you have the impossible demand with limited supply, um, you must destroy demand with price, and then um, you will eventually have the same amount of copper. So it sounds like the pinch point is one of your most bullish ways of, of expressing these views. But for, for some of this long-term demand, is there any of the super cycle stories in the commodities or the companies that you think makes you more excited? So the whole phrase super cycle is a bit of a misnomer. And having participated in commodities for the better part of 20 years as, a, as, an, as an executive, and then now the last five or six as an outsider, consultant, analyst, author, um, these cycles come and go, and um, you know the cure for for high prices is high prices, and and the cure for low prices is low prices. And um, it's a bit of a Wall Street. You know, Wall Street's always looking for the next thing. You know, AI is currently the next thing. We we are as as sort of fundamental contrarian slash defensive pessimists. We miss a lot of opportunities because we just don't believe such stuff. And and such stuff can go on for a very long time. If you would have asked us whether the AI hype would have um, been as pronounced as it has been when NVIDIA first pulled its magic in the last quarter. Uh, we would have been uh, the first to tell you that, A, we don't know, and B, if forced to push, we would fade it, and we would have been wrong, uh, which is why you know the first answer is always the one we go to. We don't know. Um, so I, I'm, I'm generally bearish the phrase super cycle. I think historically, when people are using that word, it's probably a contraindicator that the top might be closer than the bottom. Um, it doesn't mean that such you know, um, uh, cycles don't have a bit more room to run. Um, there are no such thing in our view as super cycles. Um, there's price, there's supply, uh, there's demand, and the, the three sort of meet uh, every day uh, in the market. You write more than just about energy. Uh, one of the things that caught my eye on your Substack was talking about uh, gold and and actually some of the overlaps with Bitcoin. We talk about different sources of of energy demand. Bitcoin mining is one of these things that takes a lot of energy. But for for our listeners here, maybe talk through some of your views of the overlap between Bitcoin and gold. Where some of the narratives come together uh, in your view. Yeah, I, I would begin by making the distinction between Bitcoin and crypto. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin is a regulated asset in the U.S., and most of crypto are un, unregistered securities. Um, and so uh, we we would begin that analysis by saying that the motivation for people who own Bitcoin and for people who own gold has a much higher overlap than perhaps those who own gold would like to admit. Um, they are both assets, um, as regulated in the U.S., in particular by the Internal Revenue Service. Um, they both have a bit of moneyness to them, although for different reasons. Um, and um, they both have sort of an inherent networked effect of trust and value uh, where uh, enough people assume that they're money that it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling um, prophecy. Uh, we don't own any Bitcoin. We would be what um, Bitcoin maxis would call no-coiners. Um, we believe that um, for all of its positive attributes, Bitcoin is just not something that makes sense within our own personal portfolios. In particular, we think that its um, price volatility is inconsistent with it being a a, um, a store of value for us and would make it more into the speculative asset category. And we, and we don't really speculate um, in, in assets. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot to unpack in gold and Bitcoin and so on. But in a piece we wrote called Gold and Handcuffs, uh, we made the point that the crackdown on, on crypto and the tactics that are being used should give um, gold holders pause because, uh, you know, there are scenarios where the U.S. might consider um, outlawing the private ownership of gold again. And the very same techniques and propaganda methods 
that are being used to roll up the crypto industry could very easily be repurposed for those who own physical gold. Um, on the concept of Bitcoin mining and the energy that it uses, um, we would actually probably fall into the pro-Bitcoin camp and would um, raise the eyebrow of some of our energy supporters um, because Bitcoin does provide an opportunity for uh, the providers of power to generate some value for themselves while their peaker plants are remaining idle. Um, with the introduction of more renewables, um, we need to have natural gas power plants on standby. It makes no economic sense for people to do that. And so um, if they're not operating and producing power for the grid, um, using that excess power to uh, mine for Bitcoin does allow for a bit of grid redundancy. There are vast, vast areas in the U.S. where the price of electricity goes negative sometimes because um, the forced supply of wind and solar cause um, there to be more electricity than the grid would demand in that moment. And having a rapidly, uh, a capability to rapidly uh, uptake that electricity and to produce something of value, um, Bitcoin in this case, um, does provide um, um, grid owners and grid operators uh, some flexibility that wouldn't be there otherwise. Another example would be um, if you're producing oil and it has uh, associated natural gas with it um, today, um, in a bit of a scandal, um, many operators illegally flare that gas or even just release it into the atmosphere. And methane, which is the, the, the molecular name for natural gas, is a, is a pretty uh, strong greenhouse gas. Um, and it has far higher impact on the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, for example. Um, allowing such producers to capture that natural gas and burn it on site uh, to run a turbine to mine for Bitcoin would be far superior than flaring it or releasing it into the atmosphere. Um, but uh, that's not going to be uh, something that we think is is widely approved. The environmentalists have have won that propaganda war, and and um, and so uh, in theory it would work. In theory it would be helpful, but in practice it's probably not going to come to reality. You know, it's it's interesting. You do see some of these stories about these Bitcoin miners trying to do more of that uh, locating by the by these by these areas to to get that cheap natural gas in, in other places or or in the solar or whatever uh places they're trying to connect I, I i was intrigued by your comments comparing gold uh and sort of the the, the issues that some of the gold people might have to think about and, and you were talking about it for the brick currencies trying to come together maybe being a gold-backed currency um and i wonder if you you see some of the technology trying to make gold transferable around the world having some of those elements of, of bitcoin um but but what what should in that golden handcuffs piece and some of the other things how 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 do you see gold having the, some of this the elements of Bitcoin and and the issues that the, the governments have with with Bitcoin? If we zoom out and contextualize the current state of the physical gold market from the perspective of you know the U.S. Treasury or the Eye of Soren as our friend Ben Hunt has described them, um, there's a fact set that should give you know bullion bulls some pause and, and it goes something like this. Um, gold is considered by many to be a superior form of money compared to fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. Um, gold has an incredibly high value density. You know, like I think a shoebox of it can hold somewhere between 10 and 15 million dollars worth of the stuff. Um, gold is highly susceptible to anonymization, uh, which makes it very resistant to the surveillance objectives of, of the U.S. government. Um, gold is routinely used by criminals to launder ill-gotten gains into the regular economy. That's just a fact. Because of those attributes, it is used by uh, you know uh, nefarious characters uh, for such illegal reasons. Um, it, gold has a vibrant black market, and many transactions that produce taxable gains are not properly reported to the IRS. Um, importantly, gold is processed by a small number of large refineries, and these represent point sources of uh, targets for regulatory enforcement action. Um, in the same way that the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps in the crypto space have been targeted by the U.S. government. Um, gold is owned by a small minority of U.S. citizens. Very few people actually own a meaningful amount of gold. And we suggest that very few of those people would risk prosecution in order to uh, resist a crackdown against gold. Um, and then finally, and most importantly, um, gold ownership by private citizens has been outlawed in the U.S., before. And so in the success vision of many gold bulls, where the BRICS 
countries decide to create a gold-backed currency that is a real threat to U.S. dollar hegemony, and the price of gold in dollars skyrockets. Um, that is the exact world in which the U.S. government would turn its propaganda machine against gold owners for the fact set that we just described. And that was the risk that we highlighted in that piece. And it was, in fact, that probably our most viral piece uh, in the past year. Um, and it triggered an enormous amount of discussion amongst gold bugs. Uh, and by the way, we own a, a fair amount of physical gold and also a, a pretty substantial amount of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Uh, sorry, the, FOT, the, the Sprott Physical Gold Trust, FIS, um, because we view that as a pretty efficient way to express uh, our paper holdings of gold. But there's a very simple propaganda campaign that could be done by the government, and it would look something like this. Um, gold owners are rich tax cheats. Um, gold owners are Putin sympathizers. They're enabling this competitor to the U.S. dollar. Um, gold owners are therefore unpatriotic. And uh, by the way, they're being well compensated for turning in their gold, so they don't really have anything to complain about. Um, gold owners represent a national security risk. And um, gold owners enable organized crime, like illegal drugs and se sex trafficking. Like These are very clearly what will happen if the BRICS countries get their act together and succeed in creating a, a true threat to U.S. dollar hegemony. And we felt important to put that on the, on the radar screens of, of our many subscribers who are pro-gold. I mean, you mentioned Bitcoin is just too speculative, but is that the primary risk, do you think, for Bitcoin that the governments come in and say you can't do it? This is one of the interesting places where I think of Europe being not the place for a lot of innovation, but this is a place where Europe seems to be allowing more activity with Bitcoin and even other cryptos. But Bitcoin is is at least the regulators have allowed the the quote unquote pro, you know products to come off of it. They seem less opposed to it, um, but the U.S. has not. I mean, is that the primary risk, or do you see other risks making way more speculative? This is where our views on Bitcoin would diverge from the Bitcoin maxis and probably annoy them. Um, despite our relatively neutral outlook on the asset and our support of Bitcoin mining in the right circumstance and our comparisons of it quite favorably to gold, um, money is what the government says it is. And so if you're a Bitcoin owner and you live in the U.S. Um, and the government decides that Bitcoin is illegal, good luck spending it. Now, you can keep it on a flash drive and give it to your kids in the hopes that someday the country will either change course or your kids will get to a country where Bitcoin can be spent. But very few people are willing to take that risk. And look, it's happened. Look at what happened in Canada in Justin Trudeau's crackdown on the Freedom Convoy. Um, the government decided to make, um, to blacklist wallets that had donated to the movement when it was still legal to do so. And they had donated using cryptocurrencies. Um, the financial institutions of Canada obeyed. And those wallets were blacklisted. And so um, we wrote a piece uh, more, more than a year ago now called, I believe it was called, What Canada Means for Crypto. Um, I have this photographic memory for the pieces that we've written, at least the titles of them. Um, and in that piece, we argued that um, Canada demonstrates that, um, that, that money is what the government says it is. And we have a political problem today. We have an encroachment on our freedoms. We have the debanking crisis that Nigel Farage has done such a brilliant job of highlighting in the UK, which we believe is occurring in the US uh, to some degree already. And, and we, if we do nothing about it, we'll continue uh, to get worse. Um, these are political challenges. Um, and since money is what the government says it is, you cannot solve a political challenge around money by inventing new money. You have to invent new politics because uh, a, an authoritarian regime can outlaw the, the, the transaction of goods and services in Bitcoin. And your grocery store is not going to take Bitcoin if the government tells them not to. Like You're just not going to be able to buy the goods and services that you'll need if the government decides to make you a political victim. And so one of the most important elements of money is its effectiveness as a medium of exchange. And the government controls that today. And, and yes, the Bitcoin network will always persist. It is impervious to a national attack. Um, it is an asset that you can own. But if the government decides it's not money, I hate to break it to you. It's not money. I based in Philadelphia, you wrote a piece on some of the railroad issues, and we had some derailments in the Philly area. One, one sort of that didn't make big headlines recently, but you, you wrote about some of the railroad derailments and the headlines and where things were going. Maybe talk through, um, you know, whether you thought the media was overhyping certain things, underhyping, 
um, the the state of the rail trafficking and all the hazardous materials going on? Do you think anything is going on beyond the ordinary in some of these derailments? Is it just the course that a lot of things seem to be happening? We're picking up on it. What what, what give us the, the state of affairs there? We transport by rail an enormous amount of really dangerous stuff every day. And as a consequence of the way our cities were built, i.e. mostly near uh, rivers and major waterways, because when the cities were designed, that was the primary way that we transported goods. Um, next came the railroads. And so we um, built the railroads um, very near to these cities um, because it became sort of a parallel traffic flow. So we have today um, an enormous amount of really deadly stuff um, flowing by schools and daycares and hospitals and residential areas. The highest population density parts of the country also have very high density of rail, and we transport um, tons and tons and tons of this stuff every day. Um, derailments happen all the time. They have happened all the time. Um, it is a bit of a scandal why we still transmit many of these materials via rail when there are safer alternatives. A great example would be the scuttling of the Keystone pipeline uh, necessarily means that more and more crude oil will be shipped by rail than would have otherwise been. And uh, we should be proactively making as many pipelines as we can because they are just demonstrably safer, less likely to cause accidents and death and and uh, destruction to the environment than shipping these things by rail or by truck. Um, in fact, in order of safety, it is pipelines are safer than uh, rail, which are safer than trucks. I mean, that's just uh, at the broad strokes, um, that's the way the world works. Um, unfortunately, because of politics and cynicism in the fossil fuel industry and so on, and, and in the rail sector, uh, we have today a functioning oligopoly uh, in, in the rail markets where we have four major um, players, but in fact, we have two regions where we have two players, so it's a set of two duopolies. And as a consequence of that, um, we have what you expect when you have such um, duopolies. Um, you have um, excessive pricing power, you have um, decreased service, and you have um, you know more political power because they're making so much money that they can buy off politicians and so on. And so um, the piece that uh, motivated us, or the incident that motivated us to write our first piece on it was the East Palestine. Um, derailment and subsequent fire. And there the media did an, an enormous disservice um, to the country um, by hyping the um, uh, hyping the consequences of that event beyond all proportion. And in that piece, uh, we did a systematic uh, rail car by rail car um, analysis of what was actually in the cars that burned and what the long-term um, consequences of that event would be. And our conclusion, which history has shown um, to have been the level-headed and correct one, uh, was that it was indeed uh, a significant event um, at the very local level. And it was a moderately important event at the regional level. And it was a complete nothing burger at the national level. And uh, those types of things happen all the time. Um, and for people that are local, that is not to diminish the terrible experience that they, um, that they had. And in fact, um, restitution should be made and we are sure uh, will be made. Um, but at the regional level, um, you know, we were getting DMs after we wrote that piece from people who lived, you know, um, 60 miles upwind and upriver from that event, wondering whether they should move. And, you know, as understandable as that might be, you know, uh, the entirety of the stuff was going in the other direction. And no, you don't need to move. Um, um, you could be 10 miles uh, upwind of that event and you would not have noticed it. But if you live in town and your um, local creeks are bubbling with um, oil, um, of course, it seems like a catastrophe to you um, because it is. Um, and so you know, th those are the types of things where we like to leverage um, our sort of direct knowledge uh, of the way the world actually works um, for the good of our readers. And we got we published that piece for free. Um, I believe it was called Railroaded. Um, and and um, we're certainly proud that we did. So we had a pretty wide-ranging conversation today. If you were to sort of summarize your the way you approach your own investment assets, you talked a little bit about gold as one of the things. You it seems like you like uranium. You had a little slip there. Talk about uranium as well. We started there, but how do you approach how you allocate your capital in terms of some of the opportunities, both in the, in this commodity sector broadly? 
the currencies, anything you would say about how, how you think about investing? We have, a, a, I think, a pretty unique approach, um, and I'll describe it for you. Um, we have um, three prongs to our financial allocation strategy. First, um, we earn money in fiat. Uh, we recognize that we exist in the U.S. dollar uh, world, um, and we subject ourselves to the laws of the land. <coughs> Excuse me. Second, um, we save money by buying real assets like gold and land and collectibles. Um, that's not an investment for us. Uh, we don't speculate in gold. We don't speculate in collectibles. We use our knowledge of the markets for when we might allocate a bit more or which collectibles to buy or which land to buy. But those are really assets that we're buying that we'd be happy to hold uh, hold to maturity, as one might say, in the in the accounting parlance. And then third, we actually do precious little investing directly in the markets. We do express our views on commodities or save some money by buying what we believe are the superior forms of paper gold like this brought physical gold trust. Um, but we actually do all of our investing, most of our investing privately uh, in the private markets as accredited investors. Um, and we tend to select investments where we have particular expertise to help the management teams achieve success, either through our knowledge or our context or our business management expertise. And we feel like we have the ability to help that success materialize, sort of create sweat alpha um, for ourselves based on our own set of experiences. And so we have found um, because of our experience in the venture capital world and the private equity world, um, our editor-in-chief, for example, comes from private equity, um, that we can do a decent job of getting access to deal flow, recognizing the good opportunities, investing in significant amounts when we see that the opportunity has materialized, but then, most importantly, proactively participating in the value creation ourselves. We are not good at stock picking. We aren't good at market timing. Um, others are far better at that than we are. And um, the fundamental axiom of investing is know thy weakness. And uh, that is certainly one of ours. And so um, we, we, we earn in fiat, save in real assets, and invest privately where we can affect the outcome. Well, if you'd like a copy, I'm happy to send you Stocks for a Long Run. It's a talk a lot about why stocks are the ultimate real asset, that earnings grow with dividends and inflation over time. So I'm happy to send you a, a signed copy from the professor myself. But this has been just a fantastic conversation. For people to learn more about Doomberg, the Substack, where can they, where, where should they find you? We uh, all of our writing is at Doomberg.substack.com. We are 100% subscriber supported. We have 175,000 um, subscribers free and several thousand paid, and this is the, the work of our life and what we were meant to do. And if I would leave you and your audience with one piece of advice, it would be if you find what you were meant to be doing in life. Just keep doing it. Thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully we'll we'll be able to do it again. But you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.